0: I was a disc jockey coming out of college. My undergraduate degree was in journalism and broadcasting. And so for a good several ten years, something like that, I I worked at varying radio stations and actually went to seminary thinking that I was going to be in Christian media, that I I had no intention of being a pastor. Um, In fact, Uh, My seminary degree is a two-year Master's in Theological Studies and my wife would say to me, why don't you just take the third year and get the MDiv? And I said, I am not going to be a pastor, so no way. I'm not going to waste the money and time and have to study Hebrew and all those kinds of things that come with your Master's in Divinity. And so uh, I just opted out not knowing that God has a really fun sense of humor when you tell him what he's not going to do with your life. And and so I, but I, my my initial project leaving seminary was I went to my hometown of Tallahassee, Florida, and I was starting a, an FM Christian radio station. And so my whole like first several years of my professional career were all wrapped up in being involved in Christian media. I came, uh, I re- I was raised Roman Catholic. I became a Christian. In a Pentecostal Assembly of God kind of environment, and then in the college, I started attending these charismatic churches that were under the banner of the Word of Faith churches. And so I became really finely tuned to Christian televangelism as well, and over the years, I have this almost morbid curiosity about what 's happening on Christian television stations that are usually at the far end of your cable or satellite package. But I, I troll just to see what's going on because I, I, I really sort of, um, uh, I don't know what it is. My wife wonders why I watch because half the time I'm getting mad as I'm listening to the things that they're saying. And, and the, the, the main thought process in Christian television and televangelism is all born out of what is called the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel is also known as the health and wealth gospel. If you're unfamiliar with this strand of so-called Christianity, and, and I say it that way because you know, there are people who are different than our church and our kind of tribe theologically that are brothers and sisters in Christ, and then there are some people where you wonder if they're even in the tribe, if they're even in the family of God because their beliefs are so odd and so away and so in, you know, and so joined inextricably to the world in which we live. The health and wealth gospel is suspect at its basic level and that it lacks a solid foundation in what Jesus actually accomplished at the cross and, more importantly, what the Christian life should entail. Uh, How could, I wonder, one read the Bible about the early deaths and persecution of the apostles and the earliest of Christians and the suffering they experienced, and come away thinking that Jesus' followers understood him to be saying that his purpose in coming was to make us comfortable, healthy, and wealthy. I don't know how you can read and come away with that. It's dumbfounding to me. As its name suggests, the health and wealth message generally centers around a human being's capacity to have faith in Jesus for physical healing health but what usually takes precedence at least on the television is that most of all it's about the financial blessing that's what you're really after you want God's blessing financially it is my desire that you that you prosper even as your soul prospers first john 3 john and you know and it's just unbelievable the the proof texting necessary to do that Here's the irony of it all. The the Word of Faith movement, the Health and Wealth Gospel movement, which is supposedly built your ability to achieve the supernatural healing or the supernatural financial blessing, are all key to your ability to exercise your faith in what they think God's Word has said you should be able to have faith doing. The irony of that, and the real problem with the opulent pastors, some of which are living in these 18... 1,000 square foot mansions with private jets. You can YouTube prosperity preacher opulence and you'll, you won't believe what you'd find. The real problem of the opulent pastor is how his or her lifestyle demonstrates how little faith they have in what Jesus said about where the greatest joy in life is found. See, it's supposed to be about our faith you know, my faith in God's word says I can be healed and I can be wealthy. But when you, have, when you amass as a pastor, let alone a Christian, so much wealth and your whole world seems to be consumed by an opulent lifestyle, you're ironically demonstrating how little faith you have in what Jesus said. The Apostle Paul, when leaving the Ephesian church, and incidentally today's reading, which we'll study from 1 Timothy is really Paul's instruction to a young pastor who he was leaving in charge of this church. And we read about Paul's departure from the Ephesians in Acts chapter 20. And this was, this was some of Paul's parting words to the church he founded. And then as leaving to Timothy, he said, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. In all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus how he himself said it is more blessed to give than receive. This can also be translated and rendered there's more joy in giving and receiving. And all of us who have kids at Christmas time know that this is absolutely true. When your kids are little and they give you presents you've actually purchased the gifts your kids are giving you. So there's clear more joy in watching them open the presents you've given, although it is fun to see them get excited about giving, even though they don't quite understand the cost of it yet. There is definitely, we know this from experience, there's more joy in giving and receiving. And today we're going to continue our series in the gospel in real life and look at the gospel in greed. Most people on the surface level of things would not have much problem agreeing that pastors shouldn't make millions of dollars from the offerings of a church. Some famous pastors have sidestepped this critique by saying that they made their wealth through the publishing of books that are sold nationwide. However, I can tell you that the big book contracts don't happen unless you have a big church to begin with. And this is where the rubber meets the road with rich pastors and their enablers, which is usually rich people in their church or people who want to be rich who just say, sure, pastors should have all they need and all they want and all they crave. This is where the rubber meets the road. A gifted pastor didn't create the growth of the church or the effectiveness of the ministry that they lead and doesn't deserve a thing. And I say that as a pastor who's really grateful that you all give to provide for my family, but I don't deserve it. Our church is... Coming up on its seventh birthday, we, we would, by some people's assessment, be hitting our stride, and people are coming. You're a great community of people. I love you all. I'm so thankful to get to be the pastor of this church. And it makes sense to me why people would visit our church and go, and this is a really great community of believers. I really want to be a part of this. I, it seems grace-filled and gospel-centered, and people just seem to really be friendly, and I enjoy being here. But I'm thankful that this place is not known as Chuck's Church. It would be a travesty. It would be something that I would be would dread. But how often is it that when you go and you, somebody's talking about the newest, coolest thing there? Have you been to so and so's church? I was thinking about this the other day. That you know, say what you will about the theology of Hillsong churches, but at least very few people know who their pastor is. Some of us do. But Brian Houston has has built his church that way he he doesn't want it to be known as brian houston's church most of you probably don't know who brian houston is truth be told us is, is that this is what's supposed to be the church the pastor is supposed to recognize that if my church goes well it isn't because i have superior gifts if our ministry is fruitful it isn't because i'm so impressive and powerful and have done such an unbelievable job managing staff and growth and media and technology, and look at me. If, you, if a pastor had in their head that they deserved all of this stuff that they were taking from the church, and by virtue of the church's growth, taking from the Christian culture around them, something would be really wrong. And I think we can all say amen to that. But unfortunately for you. This admonition from Timothy or from Paul to Timothy is isn't just for pastors. Paul's instruction to Timothy are words the Lord Jesus said to all of his followers. And this is exactly where we're going to begin to look at how the gospel intersects with our relationship with money. Today we look at the words of scripture. And we believe that the words of scripture were delivered from Jesus through the Holy Spirit. The first thought I have of two today for you, from Timothy's instructions to Timothy, Paul's instructions to Timothy, 1 Timothy 6. Let's read verses 3 through 6 and, and ponder this thought. Paul is reiterating Christ's sound words. Everything that Paul says, everything the apostles says, say, they're, they're all birthed out of the dependence on the Holy Spirit. What Jesus said is he was going to speak through these apostles, to bring his word to us. And he says to Timothy in verse 3, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. Boy, how would you be a health and wealth prosperity preacher and think, Jesus has come to make me rich, and not shudder when you read First Timothy 6, 5? You could be so distorted in your view of the world that you'd think that the Christian existence is about financial gain. The basic doctrinal reality of which Paul is speaking here, the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the sound words of the teachings of Jesus is that he is God and we are his creation. Apart from him, we can do nothing. Morally speaking, we possess nothing that we can use to barter with God, to have him forget about our sin and our sinful nature. We need Jesus to To be our substitute. He is our provision. Christ is our ransom. He redeems us. Jesus dies to pay for our sins. You see this. We have nothing. He pays for it. We are held captive. He ransoms us. This is the gospel. As the old hymn says, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That's why Paul can say that if you think differently about yourself, you are puffed up and conceited. All believers share in common that we are equally bankrupt, but also equally able to appropriate contentment in Christ. This is why Paul would continue in his instruction to Timothy in verses 6 through 8 and say, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world but if we have food and clothing with these we will be content the western culture person in all of us not include your pastor sees our wealth as ours we see our success as directly connected to our performance all the while forgetting that even the most naturally gifted person in the world didn't create themselves nor did they control all of the intangibles that would be necessary to work out so that they would benefit and succeed. Success in all of our ventures in life is a fragile thing that only God orchestrates. And when we forget this, we become puffed up with conceit and understand nothing. We've forgotten reality. The key to contentment is found in Jesus. Godliness, godliness with contentment is great gain. He reiterates, we didn't bring anything into the world. Everything we brought into the world was given to us as a gift by God. Walking with him, knowing him, emulating Christ through sacrifice, these are the things that fill our souls in ways that the worldly excesses that we might pursue simply cannot. They do not have the capacity To fill our beings. They don't have that kind of juice. Last week in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul, as we in the sermon series we have, if you want to go back to that message and hear, the Apostle Paul quoted a Greek thinker, uh, Epimenides of Crete. And he said, This, in echoing his words, in him we live and move and have our being. Paul was simply stating the reality of life that was evident to even the most non-Christian philosophers of the Greek world, saying these people recognize that, that we can only know fullness in life when God is the one who fills our being. When we have a distorted view of the world, we think that the stuff in the world that was given to us, that has worked in our favor through no fault of our own or really no credit of our own we forget that it's all about finding our definition of who we are in the father success messes up our head it it distorts our world the richest man in the world bill gates the founder of microsoft once famously said success is a lousy teacher it seduces smart people into thinking they can't lose This is true for the Christian. We, when given so much, it is so easy to forget that we didn't do this. This was a gift from God. Our stuff is God's. Our gifts are God's. Our being is God's. We live today because his angels protect us. I ride a motorcycle. I know that firsthand. A lot of things can go wrong on a motorcycle. But I'm believing that the Lord's protecting me. This is the, the truth of all of us. We walk through this life with God's kind, sovereign hand guiding our steps. And the Apostle Paul is saying to Timothy what Jesus said. We don't live life without him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. But Paul doesn't simply reiterate the words of Christ. Paul resolves to sound a warning. And this is the second thought from our passage in 1 Timothy this morning. Verses verses 9 through 10 say this. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money... Is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul isn't just teaching us how to experience Christ and the joy that he's provided for us, he's also warning us on how not to completely destroy our lives and relationships, including our relationship with God. Love of money, the obsessive longing for wealth, is at the root of all sorts of evil. And when you get swept up in the pursuit of the creature comforts and wealth as a means of identity or stature, it often follows that you end up in pursuits that take you away from an intimate relationship of dependence on Christ. Away from enjoying the presence of Jesus, we then look to the things our wealth can now afford us and then discover that many of those things are poisonous. The Apostle James, the brother of Jesus, had a similarly strong but compassionately urgent warning when he wrote in James 5, 1 through 3, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted your garments and are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded, and their, corrosive, their corrosion will be evidenced against you and will eat your flesh like fire you have laid up treasure in the last days. This is a really stern warning. This is like, be careful. You are holding something that is potentially toxic. One of my favorite movies of late uh, was The Martian. And uh, there's this portion of the movie The Martian where Matt Damon's character is trying to stay warm while driving along the surface of Mars and eventually figures out that, he can take this decaying radioactive isotope that they used for fuel and put it inside this rover and stay warm. So on one hand, you know, this kind of science could actually save your life, but there's also the possibility that it could kill you. Money has that same potential. It, it can be something that gives life to people, or it can, be, it can have this corrosive effect of distorting your world. So why is it so dangerous? Primarily because money provides the opportunity to delude ourselves into thinking that we don't need God. There are two underlying temptations associated with loving money. Our wealth can open two doors for us. One is to status, and the other is to security. Status would gain us the praise and approval of others. We would long for their adoration Security gains us peace and the ability not to need others. There's a term they use in the business world for this kind of money. I won't bring it up because it wouldn't be appropriate in church. But we call it autonomy in our world, that what we're really longing for is autonomy. And when you look at both these motivations, the need of the adoration of others or the autonomy from others, underlying them is this desire to be praised For what we have that isn't ours, it's God's. And a longing for peace that doesn't require continual dependence on God. The original sin of our first parents, Adam and Eve, was a desire to live life on their own terms. And sad to say, all these years later, in our broken nature, we want our own glory just like they did. When our wealth or success is our Lord and the real source of our life, we begin to resent the Lord's claim to be the author and the finisher of our faith, the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. And the reason is because it's threatening to our existence when our life is found in how great we are instead of how great God is, then when God asserts his greatness in our lives, that feels threatening. We begin to resent it. Jesus said it like this in Matthew 6, 24. He said, no one can serve two masters, for either he will love one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And this longing for independence belies reality. That's what's so important to remember. We can't live without God. We wouldn't have had life without him. I mean, when you think of the, the biological odds of actually being born, when you think about the number of sperm at, with a single egg and the idea that you were the person that resulted from that, the mathematics of it are mind-boggling. You didn't create yourself. God superintended that experience. You didn't pick the place you were born, the country you were born into, the family you were born into. You didn't pick the gifts that God gave you that helped you get where you needed to go. None of that happened without him. So for us to live in this delusional state where I'm getting all the glory and I'm developing all my security, it is just that. It's it's really kind of crazy town. It's us in our broken state going I have a completely distorted view of reality. And the danger of that is, when that all comes crashing down, your security was built on all sorts of things that are not dependable. You can't sustain that. We don't have the power and strength to keep security in front of us. This is just not something that God has given us the ability to do. So we really are being dishonest to the core when we attempt to glom off of God's glory for our own silly sense of being adored by others and living autonomously apart from him. So what now? Thanks, Chuck. This has been really encouraging. I'm glad I came. Well, the apostle has words of encouragement for those of us, and I would venture to say today that most of us in the Western world would fit the category of being wealthy and rich. That includes you who think you're middle income compared to the person down the pew from you. But compared to the rest of the world, you are the rich. And here's an encouragement. In verses 17 through 19 of this same letter, 1 Timothy 6, Paul says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty. We are being called to set our hearts on that which can genuinely satisfy us, that which we were created to crave and need, and that is the Lord. Our hearts are the issue. Where we find real life, this is the issue. Because I've discovered, and I'm sure you have too, that where you are very enthusiastically getting what you need, when where you find life, you're fairly committed to that. If you're a a gym rat and you get lots of joy from looking good and having those endorphins kick and you're really committed to your exercise. If you're a football person like me then you know you rearrange your entire fall schedule around Saturdays. I work on Sundays so I miss out on the NFL but at the same time I'm pretty committed to it. I, I rearrange, I make sure all of my work for church is done so it's Saturdays. I can completely immerse myself in the joy of college football. See, when we're, when we're getting life from something, we're committed to it. And Jesus said it like this in Matthew 6, 21. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Today, the step of repentance is to turn our hearts over to God. For some, redirecting our treasures may play a role in redirecting our hearts. I may need to spend less on entertainment to cease looking to it for my life's joy. Perhaps your money gets spent at the mall. Your heart will continue to find its delight in your style or your stuff unless that money finds its way to the things God has planned for it. And this is the starting point of our repentance. And this is where the gospel intersects with greed and with our need for these things. Can we honestly say to God, Father, I need you more than anything else? My wealth is your wealth, and I'm going to spend it the way you want it spent. I'm going to find my life in you. See, if that's not true, then all the rest of this stuff is just trying to do things the Christian way or trying to apply the right principles to get more stuff, which is what you get on the televangelist message. If I can just line up everything and do everything right. I'll get what I really want out of life, which is what success and health and comfort. And Jesus is saying, what I'm interested in is your heart. I want your heart to be with me. Your treasure will naturally follow. And as a way of giving you three quick little pointers, all right, because I don't want you to leave here completely incapable of processing this, I call them the three Ps. This is how you discern whether or not you are actually uh, spending your money the way God wants you to spend it. Because the Bible doesn't say this is how much money you should spend on your kid's schooling and this is how much money you should spend on clothing and this is how much of a mortgage you should carry. Th- they're not specific like that. The Bible is not filled with all these specific terms. It's, it's a discerning process that gets worked out in genuine fellowship with God and others. The, the three Ps that Carolyn and I have used in our lives to assess where we think we are in terms of stewarding the resources God has given us is prayer is the first one. Proverbs 1, seven says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, and that fools despise wisdom. So obviously we're going to spend time and actually say to God, My stuff's your stuff, so what do you want? And have your way in our lives. The second P is partners. You have to have people in your life that you're willing to let speak into your life. Proverbs 11.14 says, Where there is no guidance of people falls, but in an abundance of counselors, there is safety. If you never let anybody speak into your life and tell you, you you're doing something to your own detriment, the Bible would call you a fool. You need prayer, you need partners. And then the third P is patience. Proverbs 14.8 says, The wisdom of, prudent, of the prudent is to discern his way but the folly of fools is deceiving. Urgent, quick, impulse buying seems contrary to Scripture. God would call us to be thoughtful people. And all of that takes place in the context of a soul that's finding its real life in the master himself. That Jesus would be the place we would look fullness of life so let's pray to that end shall we today